Welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Mercier. Louise is a nutritional therapist, award-winning author of How Food Shapes Your Child, and a presenter on Early Years TV Food Channel. As well as all this, Louise is the force behind the Health Kick, promoting a healthy lifestyle without the contradictory and often misplaced advice in the world of nutrition. Hello and welcome to Louisa's Health Kick podcast in the May theme of men's health and I'm delighted to be joined today by Joe Plum. Joe is an award-winning public figure specializing in anti-bullying, children's mental health and safeguarding. Joe is definitely a voice for the people. Joe speaks from experience and is fully aware of the devastating impact that bullying can cause and that recovery is a long journey. So I'm really delighted to have you here with us Joe and I'd like to start with just you telling us in your own words kind of a bit about your backstory and what's led you to where you are and what you're doing today. Yeah, so thank you for having me on. So from a very young age, I'm autistic, um, and that was kind of one of the first of many diagnoses that, uh, diagnoses that I'd received. And in school, I had no friends at all. Uh, I was different from everyone else, and I think that's mainly down to where, where the bullying came from was kids don't understand these sort of things unless it's taught, spoken about, that education, that awareness. It's quite scary. So kids will isolate you from them because they won't understand why you're different. So all throughout school, I was beaten up. I couldn't even go to the toilet in school without getting my head kicked in. It got worse in the secondary school. And even the teachers and the understanding from the teachers and how to deal with these sort of things. It was tough for my family because of the bullying and everything else going on from a young age. You know, I, I was seven when I was diagnosed with autism. It did cause a bit of tension and quite a lot of upset. I tried taking my own life for the first time at the age of 11, which was very hard on my family. Um, but I just got to the point where I, I just couldn't cope. And but I say back then, I'm not that old but I mean back then it things weren't spoken about you know openly and especially from a boy's or man's perspective and just anyone kind of mental health autism related didn't speak so things got worse I'm type 1 diabetic and then I started abusing my insulin uh, little did I know I've had an allergy to insulin as well which is great out of all things you could be allergic to but yeah it got worse going on and on and the problem with a lot of getting the right help is until you reach a certain age, like 18, you can't get diagnosed with stuff like mixed personality disorder, which I have now. Um, and I have complex PTSD from a lot of things going back from being in care and in school. So I have so many, it must have been 12 different diagnoses as to what was going on and no help. And that was really difficult. I was, you know, put on so much medication, which doesn't help. There was no talk, like therapy going on. It was just a case of you'd see a psych um, psychiatrist and that was it. That would be a, you know, three-month appointment done. When I was 13, I uh, I used to watch a lot of Martin Luther King films. And for me, that was because of the autism, I need to visualize things. And I looked at this this man and this uh, and the black community who s stood up against the masses, you know, all the 
racism they endured, the the hate, the abuse, the the violence. It was awful. And this one man stood up and in his own words put the negative experiences that he was facing into his I had a dream speech and what his dream would be afterwards. So when I was 12, I uh, I had to, it sounds bad, I had to teach myself how to not be autistic, but I started volunteering in a youth cafe, which gave children, young people somewhere to go, something to do and someone to talk to. But it was also a place where people that bullied me went to. So it put me on this, this level where I was a volunteer and I had a say, if you weren't going to be respectful, if you weren't going to listen, if you're going to keep putting, giving me all this abuse, you couldn't come in. You know, you, you were banned for a few sessions. But it also gave me the platform to enable people to understand who I truly was without, oh, he's just that weird kid. He's the autistic kid. Or everyone else being the sheep and following what everyone else was doing. And this, for me, was great because... The social communication part of the autism has always been difficult and it is still difficult, but it taught me so many things. So it made me push myself. And I started volunteering then for national organizations, the National Council of Voluntary Youth Services, British Medical Association. Yeah, they counted 53 different volunteering opportunities when I was 13 and I won some awards for that. And then when I was 13, I started off Stand Up Speak Out. Social media was just coming about like it is now. It was all based on, oh, I've got this many followers on, it was Twitter back then. Instagram wasn't really spoken about much. But what I noticed is there wasn't anyone openly talking about their situation in school, bullying situation or whatever. And also the schools weren't doing enough. So when I did some volunteering with the county council, started off an anti-bullying accreditation scheme locally when I lived in Northampton, and I wanted to change the way things were done. So I started to stand up, speak out, and I spoke about all of my experiences, and this campaign was really to promote being open, being allowed to talk, giving you that confidence to not be afraid of who you are, not putting yourself down, not listening to you know the nasty people that are trying to constantly put you down all the time. And not just seeing yourself as a label, it's taking your diagnosis, if you have one, if that's like one of the reasons why you're being bullied, but taking that and realizing actually that's what makes you you. It's kind of changing the way things are spoken about and changing that thought pattern. And then this campaign just went global. And I suddenly went from the kid that was a nobody that no one wanted to listen to was just autistic joe and to around the world people listening i gained this massive following i was in national local international press and then you know i got support from richard branson sunita brought me up quite a bit james arthur you know all of a sudden i had more friends who were in this in this big limelight than i did people who i could talk to which was also very difficult because it you know, you can't always just reach out. But Sunita was a great help. She listened to me when I got my Diana Award. She presented it and she always kind of guided me through this tough journey, which also put me in a psychiatric unit because I didn't know how to deal with that. It was like what you hear about in Love Island. You know, you come out of it and you can't adjust to normal life again. So I continued to do what I did and I worked with the Home Office to create a toolkit to enable people with autism to 
disclose of any situations where they may have been bullied or mistreated in a way that was accessible to them and to everyone really so it was as simple as just having pictures and parents could understand it teachers could understand it and that was a really good tool really proud of that and just kept going and going and going and then I was in a psychiatric unit for most of three years in and out I was killed twice by the first unit I went into in Sheffield which was far far away from home he refused to give me any of my medication, um, hid me away from everyone else. And it wasn't until a parent heard my screams of pain, they called an ambulance and the hospital didn't want to call one because it would look bad on them in their own admission when my father went and uh, kind of gave him a grilling. They have been closed down now. but So I was taken to hospital and I was on life support. I was dead pretty much. My organs had shut down. It was horrible. And I'll never forget the pain. Yeah, it it was awful. And then after four weeks, I was sent back and they did it again. And this time I went to, back into hospital. I was blue lighted, in intensive care, and the director of the hospital put me in a section, so which overrode the section two, which they couldn't take me out of the hospital care. It was like, I'm not having you go back there. We'll keep you here until we can find a suitable place for you to go, hopefully close to home. So yeah, I was put closer to home and, uh, you know, my parents fought a lot to get me back there, to get me into the unit there. And they were great. You know, there's still, units aren't great. It's just kind of faking that you're better in, to get out of them, but there, there's not any support. Or you've got that one member of staff, which was the psychologist, who everyone wanted to see so it couldn't be you couldn't go for that support because he just had so many people to see and it just kept going on and on and I was put into care because of how it affected my family you know I can hold my hands up and say no I wasn't easy there were so many things going on so many misdiagnoses that it was hard to deal with you know it wasn't all me and uh the first care home I went into I was beaten up by staff and the other people that lived there and social services didn't listen to me. So on top of the bullying and having all of that, it, it was awful. And I complained for so long and they didn't listen. And I went onto the motorway, I escaped, went onto the motorway in the middle of the night and jumped in front of a car, which luckily was an unmarked police car who were also carrying tasers. Um, and uh, I was tasered for my safety. I was put on a 136 um section sent to hospital and the hospital basically said if you didn't you haven't killed yourself so go away and this is so much of what we hear now it's this too late to act you're leaving people to go on their own and it's too late you're not giving them that support one of the things i did is in care i started off children care forum and the care leavers council to give children young people more of a say in how the services are run which worked really well. We built a social work academy. So instead of now becoming a social worker in Northampton, you have to get interviewed by children and young people. If you can't communicate with them in an interview, how are you going to do your job? So it's going back to square one, getting that training, getting those tools that you need. And then it was getting trained a bit by children and young people, hearing their personal stories and how those decisions impacted them. And now my other charity is the first ever of its kind in Europe to run social services in a charitable structure, which is really cool. I was very proud of myself. I said for years, you know, we need to do this. We need to do this. 
Now that runs and we're building care homes, which are trauma-informed approaches, linking up with uh, like the youth offending service who to try and tackle this figure of eight re-offending and the statistic, you know, 85% of people in young offenders institutes are children in care. And that's because they don't have the right support. They don't feel listened to. And the only thing to do when they come out, because they don't get that support to reintegrate into society, is to re-offend again. So we do a lot of work there. I became a Kidscape ambassador um, and soon to become a director of Kidscape as well, which is really cool. They helped me out just via little emails when I felt alone. And yeah, I've, I've done a fair few things. Got an organization in America. I ended up on as an extra on Waterley Road. Did some weird music things. You know, I've done some work with Ed Sheeran. They put some very awful covers out on Spotify. Uh, which is what also comes up when my name's typed into Google, but I'll leave that there. <laughs> if you want to laugh and want to lift your mood up, then listen to it and just be like, eh. um, but uh, yeah, so I was just on TV and it was very back and forth and I've done a lot of su- stuff since. I think you, you sound incredibly humble when you say, uh, you know, I've done a few things on that, but you've done, I mean, we all hear, you know, oh, the system's broken and, you know, this, that and the other, but when you, put that into the context of what you've explained and what you've lived through and your personal journey. It's more than the system being broken. It's more than, it's it's a really, a kind of, it, the whole thing seems broken in terms of, you know, the, the school systems, the diagnosis. We're not talking a long time ago. You're not very old now, you know. <laughs> so, we're you know, people might think, oh, well, things have changed, things are better, and hopefully things are changing. But this isn't, this isn't very long ago. I mean, I don't know if you mind me asking. How old are you now? Because you, you're not very old, are you? I'm 24, 25 in July. Yeah, it's the support is awful. I've started off a new organisation called Heads to Health. So with the support and what's been discussed, the government say, oh, you know, we've put all of these, these new things in place in schools, which was delayed two years obviously covid did have an impact but we can't just blame covid for all the failings to implement help support and change but it's literally only a week of pshe that that's it and this needs to be something constant and it's not it's not a complicated thing to solve which makes me really angry so i've never been paid for anything i do i do it all out of my own pocket i work many jobs i'm a trained medic you know i i just want to make a difference i've always said when it's my time to to go when it's my time to die i want to know that when i go i've done something good to help people for the better so we're implementing training for teachers an accreditation scheme in schools which will have different levels so like the anti-bullying accreditation it'll have bronze silver gold and platinum and that'll be a continuous thing so schools will pay like what small yearly fee and they'll get their training updates for teachers and it will have workbooks for children, young people, how to notice the signs and symptoms if a pupil or a friend or someone in your class isn't feeling too well. But also if you someone discloses something to you in school, it's not panicking, it's knowing what to do. And we're putting that in workplaces as well because it is as simple as listening, but without kind of having that small knowledge and understanding, it does scare a lot of people. It's like, okay, I can't listen to any more of this right now. Yeah, it does. People people feel that they have to fix it and, th- and then they don't know how to, so they can sort of back away from it. But I think what you said early on about children, children's role in this, because, 
you know, we often talk about bullies and we can we can blame the bullies and think, oh, bullies, you know, it's a horrible, and it is a horrible thing, but children are children and they, they just don't know. As you say, the child who is the bully is often portraying behaviors that they've seen or witnessed against themselves and they're in a situation that they, they can't express. So I think to include the children in that, that, that school system is really, really important because it's not just for the teachers. It's, it's not just for the, the people who work in schools. The children may not be guessing the positive role model influence at home. They may be get, hearing things at home that is shaping their own perception of differences in people. You know, we know this with racism and with lots of different factors of society. So including children so that children can make the difference between perhaps what they see at home and think, well, actually, that's not quite right, rather than just completely believing that narrative and having that sort of narrow vision of the world, which will make them, you know, potentially be a bully or make them just not see people differently, not recognize differences. So how are you including the the children? And you mentioned workbooks and things. Like when we were on the ZAT workshops, obviously it's bullying is never your fault. And it's, you know, the children that come on these workshops, they've all got similar stories. And some of the things we hear is heartbreaking. It's, it's horrible. And, you know, we always say, and I think it's really important to say, you know, we, we're not condoning anything that bullies do, but it is something that something is happening in their lives often that they feel that they've got to portray that behavior or act in a certain way to protect themselves from also getting hate back because they're scared but also what we have seen what i've seen is there is something going on at home too we need to safeguard that particular child we need to give them the help and this needs to be done correctly in schools the safeguarding protocols as we've seen in the news so many times the young lad alfie you know there was signs in the schools and in social care and they weren't acted upon or safeguarded appropriately. So one of the things I'm trying to do is also build a system where schools, workplaces have a system where they can write their safeguarding report. It's shared with the local authority. It's kind of like a record that will go with that child to their next school or wherever they are. So it keeps that continuity, but you can also see if it's been acted on and it will then be triaged appropriately. So we can't have the excuse that, oh, it's just been missed or we haven't heard it. You have because it's right there. It's all these paper trails, but these systems just do not work. It's like when you register with a new GP practice and they're using system one and someone's using patient access or whatever, they don't link in. It should just be one unified system that keeps everyone safe. And if we can teach children, young people, these skills, learn how to talk about it, identifying if someone's not feeling okay, being kinder to one another, this carries on with them throughout their whole life. So it improves the workplace environment. But obviously COVID, what we saw is people with anxiety in workplaces kind of moving on as well. It's people who already had anxiety wanted to stay at home, stay in bed all day. They were allowed to do that, but it makes things so much worse. And now everyone going into work again, that level of anxiety for everyone has increased and workplaces don't necessarily know how to do that now mental health first aid training is great but it's literally just like sitting in a basic first aid training for five hours and you're getting ticked off saying that yeah you've done the training it's not enough we need all managers bosses to be appropriately trained we also need to give them the support in knowing how to deal with things 
and making their workplace a better and friendlier environment for everyone so people feel safer, but also the employees knowing that they are supported. You know, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, embrace that. You will be treated the same, but also knowing if someone is causing someone stress, harm, they will be dealt with effectively, but it's also having those protocols put into place, which is too little, too late. And this is where the man up thing, you know, that man up culture. So many times we see it, you know, oh, it's just man up. I'd say to a degree it's getting better. And I thank COVID for that. Unfortunately, the start of COVID, we saw everyone talking openly about mental health and supporting one another. And I thought that was going to carry on, but now it's just kind of gone back to square one. You know, have got Piers Morgan that will go off on a rant and slate people like he did with Meghan Markle. I wrote an article about it and got into an argument with him at the Sun Awards. It was just going on, on and on and on again about the Meghan and Harry situation. Like they can do what they want. If they want to be out of that life, that's fine. I understand why. I, I get that. But to openly say on air, you know, after myself and the team at ITV doing the Britain to get talking thing, which is working perfectly, to be on an ITV program and saying, oh, Meghan Markle said she felt depressed. She said that she was suicidal, but she wasn't. That was fake. I don't believe her. That sent such a message out to so many people who were struggling, thinking that they weren't going to be believed if they felt suicidal, if they went to seek help. And that really made me very, very angry. And a lot of people slate Meghan Harry. I wrote an article I was asked to, and I was dealing with some of the fallout from that as well. And people did take their own lives because of seeing something like that. Things are never going to get better. So why should I suffer? He, he kept going on and on about it. And uh, I was with um, Vernon Kay having a conversation and uh, Vernon Kay was taking a photo of us and he jumped in behind me. But he kept going on and I just shut him down straight away there and then. I don't know why he was there, considering there's a mental health award. For me, the Sun Awards were great, but having a Caroline Flack mental health award when you saw the first tabloid newspaper to start spreading rumours and was the Sun newspaper. So part of me when I got that was, I'm a bit confused and I don't really know if I want to accept this because look at what they've done. And yeah, there's there's this man up stigma, like there is, there's a stigma with everyone still, but the man up stigma, it's always been, oh, you don't talk about it, you're a man, just man up. You've got to support your family, those typical male roles when it's not. I really like the, um, when I was researching for the theme of, um, of men's health for May, I came across a quote that, that I hope that was you and it had, it was a picture of you and it's a quote that's, I'll read a bit of it. I am a man and no less of a man for admitting I'm not okay. And why, why do we feel that it's less manly to admit you're not okay? I mean, I know that historically we've got these depictions through history and females, if females display emotions, they're, they're called, you know, hysterical and that's, you know, Going back in time, doctors actually would have referred to women going through postnatal depression or the menopause, and they would have given them um, a title of hysterical. It would have been down as medical hysteria. It's it's a hormonal, you know, it's just it's just a hormonal effect in the body, but it would have been but down as hysterical. So women are kind of depicted as hysterical and should you know calm down, whereas men are pitch, you know depicted as kind of need to just you know be this sort of stoic, you know, emotionless display of masculinity and 
I don't know how we move away from that, really. I, I, as you say, I think there, we are starting to, but there are generations of men who literally have suppressed emotions their entire life because, and it's all pent up, of course, as humans, we can't biologically control our emotions. They need to be out. So often it will come out as anger, but it's not really anger. And this comes back to the whole bullying and thing. It's not really anger. It's confusion. It's sadness. It's frustration. But the only emotion they feel they're allowed to display is anger. Because as a boy, as a man, it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to cry. Yeah, it does go back to, you know, the historic gender roles that everyone played in society back then. And it's carried on because there's been that lack of conversation. And like I said, I think it is improving a little bit. COVID with, you know, there's a lot more podcasts with men getting together, talking openly. There's a lot of, in Cambridgeshire, there's men walks. So men meet up, go for a walk and have a chat. How are you doing? It's dangerous that this is happening. I don't know how we're going to move away from it. I mean, I wrote that quote, that was part of an article because last year I, I just suffered a massive, massive breakdown. Relapses are inevitable with my condition, with the PTSD, the depression, which I've learned to accept, but it was a, it was a big, a big one. And then afterwards I write about it because it's, it's strange having this global following where, you know, I've got 3.2 million people that look at my Facebook page that know how I'm feeling without talking to me, but through my different behaviors of not posting one day or so I put, I, I just openly expressed what was going on. And as a man using social media, that's a really powerful thing to do. And we should never feel afraid to do it. One, what that does is it also breaks this stupid, like, focusing on how many likes you get is just this main thing which you look at male and female and children statistics of eating disorders now it's got so much worse I've got an eating disorder and I still struggle and part of that is social media I hold my, hold my hands up I'm getting better with that I turn off my phone just not looking at those things but it's that way you need to be boys look at this stuff on Instagram on whatever platform and I will say Instagram's the worst because there's a big mental health community of those who are struggling with mental illness or mental ill health that will post on there. It's a lot of recovery things. And then there's a bit of competition because one will get more likes or one has to do this and it makes it worse. Uh, I mean, all the social media platforms are a bit of a devil. Look at politics, the free speech aspect, and then you get shot down for sharing your opinions because people can't believe that other people can have a different opinion without being wrong and then they need to be shot down it annoys me it's i think it's a horrible world social media but i think it's a it's a necessary platform and you obviously have got an amazing following on your platforms and that gives you a voice to like you were going back to the the, the story early on it gives you a voice to use your negative experiences in a positive light and you've got a great following to be able to do that and hopefully the majority of them are following you for the right reasons and are positive but they'll always be with social media, the negative side, and, and often that completely outweighs the positives that it that it can bring. And that's, that's when it becomes quite a sad place to be um, because it's so it's so addictive. It's, it's, it's horrible, particularly with Instagram and the comparisons and the, the not real life situations that are often portrayed and presented. You can, you can put these filters on, right? You know, I hate, you know, I, I, I do it myself sometimes, but and then I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, why do we need to put a filter on a photo, which is just us naturally? Like, what is the reason for that? 
And then you've got the algorithms with social media that now focus on having those specific filters, the colors and how you look, which will then boost your marketing. Like, And that's so wrong. And then you've got the adverts, which is how you should look. Oh, look at these weight loss supplements. And then you've got people overdosing on weight loss su- supplements. That's one thing I do. You know, out of my own like money, I, I put aside every month like an amount for adverts. So I'll put a post up which is inspiring, which encourages people to talk, encourages kindness. And I put that out as an advert. So that'll reach everyone. So that will drown out all the other negative adverts. So I just hope it makes a difference. Like someone will see that and it's a bit different. Like, okay, social media isn't all that gloomy. But the amount of times I've had to moderate my own social media because there will be people that are so horrible you know it's making sure that i deal with that because facebook won't because twitter won't i've received countless death threats and horrible messages and all sorts and i mean i just replied to those with kindness and i mean there was a, a gentleman a few weeks ago that told me to kill myself and i was a fat this and whatever i was just like oh thanks gary have a great day smiley face and he was like oh and then it, six hours later i got a reply with an apology, like, I'm so sorry, I was unkind. I think they forget that you're human. I think that's the thing. They forget that they're actually talking to an actual person. And when you replied in that way, it was it made him stop and think and think, oh, actually, yeah, I've been a bit of a... And, you know, that's a real person. It does. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's that opposite action, and it's, uh, it's quite interesting. But, you know, people were hiding behind screens. Social media platforms do allow it. You know, we see so many things where things aren't taken down. People report things. And it's like, oh, your report doesn't go against our community standards. When it does, it's ridiculous. But it's a way for social media platforms to make money. And then putting that alongside, you've got people that are struggling. I've built this community of kindness of so all of my followers. If I see any hate, I will delete. I will go through and make sure that I've only got people that haven't said certain things, that haven't upset anyone. So you get other people supporting other people that will say they're struggling on a post. And I love seeing that. I feel proud that I've built that kind of community. But I get so many people from all over the world. Like the start of lockdown, the first week, I had three, three and a half thousand messages from all around the world. And I had to safeguard so many people. I've got force control numbers for the US, Australia, and the UK. The police can only do so much. You know, they've got to ask for a warrant. If I believe it's life-threatening, I will do what I can. I know my tech, and I will make sure I can find out that person's okay and get resource. It shouldn't take one person that's not paid to do that job to realise that this is a category one call you need to go. There are five people that unfortunately lost their lives, which I've kind of become accustomed to now. I've lost so many friends, you know, last year, the year before, you know, five friends. I've lost three people already this year from suicide because that support is not there. Uh, a friend of mine jumped in front of a train, you know, and trying to find him on the phone and having to navigate the police like you need to go you need to go and it's shocking when you're in a psychiatric unit you know so many people that struggle and unfortunately a number of those become your best friends and a lot of those also take their own lives and it's it's very sad i see kind of numb to it now and i don't want anyone to take that in the wrong way it's just people are so under supported aren't listened to and it, it just becomes numb after a while but i can kind of take something in knowing that I've tried to help as many people as I can and the people that I've helped outweighs the number of people that felt it's too late. 
I think you can definitely take a, a great comfort in the amazing things that you have done. And I'd say you've done more than try to help. You've done more than, you know, many organizations over many decades have managed to do. So you can certainly, you know, you can certainly know that you have helped and are helping. But if there was, uh, you're doing a lot, obviously, but if there was one thing or a, I know celebrities are getting better um, and you know, like footballers, professional footballers will be talking about talking and things like that. But if there was one thing that you would like to see as a genuine change, which would help you not, not contradict you or not go against you or not frustrate you. But if there was kind of one thing, I know there's more than one thing, but just let's single out one thing that would help. What, what would you like to see? Just some more genuine reactions you know uh, uh, celebrity or not I just see them as people and I think that's how I've grown up and also that's how I've been so good at networking but a lot of these celebrities get paid for doing certain things you know if they uh, a charity wants to interview them to help spread the message because they are great people to help spread a message they will still charge do it for the kindness like show that you're genuine why don't footballers on a mad salary you've got the NHS staff you've got police you've got healthcare like fire service all of these amazing emergency services and these amazing people that work there that get paid next to nothing and you get footballers and don't get me wrong you've got a great talent you've worked hard to get to where you are but is it worth 100 million a year like there's some stupid amounts no it really isn't and the interest they earn on that as well like i'd love that sitting in my bank i wouldn't touch it they could literally wipe out so many problems. You know, why can't we go, right, I get you're very talented, very skillful, but show that you want to make a difference. You're not doing it for money. Donate a bit of money to these organizations that have really, really, really struggled throughout lockdown. You know, there's no funding out there for charities. We're struggling. Everyone is struggling. Put money towards people's gas and electricity bills that have gone up, you know, and try and just spread that positivity, not just talk about it, show that you mean it. You know, men especially, try and start a group. Just try and make it more of an open thing. When you go to the pub with your mates, go to watch the football, don't know, oh, how's work been? Or, you know, oh, I've met up with this. Like These are the typical conversations that happen in a lads group. Just a simple, how are you doing? Seriously, how are you? Just keep that, make it a normal conversation. And the more you keep that going, the more normal these conversations become. People will hear them. It's a ripple effect. It's really interesting because um, in the, the men's health theme as well, we did a podcast with Elliot Ray and um, he was talking about this very same thing in that men will talk on the surface. They will never go any deeper and it will be very much a the weather, the football, the, you know, whatever. But it won't be feelings, it won't be emotions, it won't be how are you actually doing, you know, is there anything worrying you? And some of the posts I've been putting out this month are not just about the mental health, but the physical health. And men won't mention, oh, I've, I'm a bit concerned about this, or is this normal, or should I, you know, should I get this seen to? Because it's like, again, there's like a stigma that why should men not talk about health? Why should men not think something might be amiss with their body or something? It doesn't have to be something, a mental health problem, but they won't a lot of the time even mention that something hurts or something doesn't feel right but even in the health service we experience this as well like me as a man with an eating disorder you know I, I still really struggle and I have messed my body up completely neuropathy wise can't we because of the things I've done I've got catheter got a problem with my bowel I might have to have a 
colostomy bag because of the packets of uh, Dolclax that I was the laxatives that I was taking. It, it you know, it, it's really damaging. But the one uh, I phoned up and got some help. I, I've been diagnosed for years, and no one's ever wanted to help me. Only since moving to Cambridge, I had some therapy for my personality disorder. I'm waiting for the next round. But then speaking about the eating disorder side, and I lost 11 kilos in a week, like it was mad. And calling up, and the lady was like, well, you're a man. Uh, you can't get an eating disorder. Literally, and I'm the wrong person to say that to. Like, straight away, note it down. I said, sorry, can you just repeat what you said? Record it. And she was like, you're a man. You can't have an eating disorder. And I was like... I mean, it's, it's do you know who I am moment. But it was like, right, I just want you to look up my name and just look at what I do. Uh, I'm, I'm very unwell, but look at, look at my reach and what I do. Are you sure you want to continue with that attitude? Because I'm pretty sure someone like you shouldn't be working in a service that's supposed to support men and women, boys and girls, and getting the help they need. It just, it really shocked me. And I know going back to the, you know, the female side of it, when you look at autism diagnosis, 85% of people that are autistic are boys and men. It's just put down to hormones or a hormone imbalance in women so they don't get the help. And you see a lot of women now talking about, I've only just been diagnosed with autism and I'm in my 40s and I'm autistic, little one's autistic. My partner, I mean, she won't mind me saying that, we say it all the time, but she is she is the same as me we are literally the same person but she is denied help because there's this stupid criteria that it's just a tick box but it's it's all been focused all this research and this development has all been done because it's been focused on men you know there's been no focus on the chemical imbalance in the brain of a woman mixed in with the different hormones so how will autism look differently in a woman than it will to a man because it will do and it's the same with so many things the services need to change the criterias need to be lessened because there's so many things that you could fit one thing you could fit another actually it can just be simplified they've got rid of asperger's syndrome now which is just um high functioning autism because asperger's literally looked like so many different things which has led to misdiagnosis and there's such a broad spectrum that no one actually understood what asperger's was so you know i'm diagnosed asperger's but now it's high functioning autism and people understand that and that makes it better in raising awareness and getting that conversation and getting that training right you know we all need to support each other we're all human beings we are all going to have down days if there's people listening to this with mental illness or mental ill health you will have relapses one of the main things is don't beat yourself up when you have a relapse getting back up is hard but when you get back up really take that as a massive achievement because it takes so much strength and remember that moment there are so many different things you can do like i've just done therapy and i've it was the simplest thing i've done but i was like why haven't I ever done that before like checking the facts like all of these things like, it, it makes sense and it's so simple and I got angry with myself I was like why but yeah you know different things work for different people don't just look on Google and see like Google recommends writing your feelings down on a bit of paper light a candle with some scents put some music on mixing different things breathing techniques are really good if you've got anxiety seven eight nine great technique and just find something that works for you. It's a work in progress. And, you know, the services aren't going to change overnight. But actually, let's just all rally together. If we can all be angry and unite in one particular thing, it's how poor the services are. I'm not 
that's not a dig at anyone that works in them, but actually. It's not the individuals, is it? I think this is what, what often gets messed up with that message is that people, some, some. Because it's too things, easy yeah. to get a job. Like a HCA yeah. can just do a training, yeah. do training for two days and then they're all of a sudden qualified and it's the easiest industry to go into. But look at the amount of issues and deaths we've had from uh, maltreatment, malpractice. It's the same. You can, you have to go to university to become a counsellor, but anyone can be a therapist without a degree. I'd never say I'm a therapist. I did a simple counselling course, but I'm now going on to do psychology and counselling at university to get that degree because I think it's really important as well. Use whatever you're diagnosed with to your strengths. Like that makes you who you are. But let's get more people to work in this area that needs improving to make things better. If you have someone with an eating disorder that's talking to someone else with an eating disorder, that relatability, that rapport gets so much better. And the help and the understanding, someone can go away feeling they're not alone and that someone actually gets it instead of this fake, oh yeah, I get how you feel. And you just know it's just, it's all scripted. And you know, this is what shot me when I did therapy. It wasn't scripted. Even some F words coming out of the person that was running the therapy course, part of the NHS, and just making it a bit fun and a bit of a normal conversation. It made everyone focus and like just started this. And everyone in the group got together. And it made me feel like I wasn't alone because there's stuff with my personality disorder, which I've got this, but no one else gets it. So I'm, I must just be strange. And then I sat on this group therapy on Zoom, which isn't the best place to do it. And everyone understood. And I was just in this. It's not just me. And there's always people out there that can relate to what you're going through. But let's just all rally together and really try and improve things for the better. Stop the hate. Spread kindness. Put a how are you on your social media. Simple status on Facebook and reply to those apply to everyone but just checking on your friends checking on your neighbors checking on everyone and yeah you know together we can all make change i feel like a one-man band who's trying so much to do all these different things and it does my head in yeah you're a one-man band who's achieved an awful lot and i think you know you've got to remember that and know how much you have done because you've done you know you're really not very old and you've been through a lot but you've achieved even more so your achievements are sort of greater than I think sometimes when you go through a lot and you can kind of like put the negative experience into the positive outcomes, you can not say you can, but people can focus on their negatives and think, well, you know, I've, I've got all this negativity and I've had all these negative things happen to me. It's, of course, it's easier. And then there's sort of that negative mindset as well that people can get into where it will always happen or something will always go wrong or I'm not going to try that because it'll not work. And it's just then when things are positive and as you say, when you do rise up again and when you, you have a setback and you come back from it, to really give yourself that, that recognition of you know achievement, no matter how small, a really small thing can be a really big thing. And I always say that with people with food as well, you know, with them food choices, you know, if you have eaten something and you didn't want it, don't feel guilty, you know, because that that then creates a negative chain of events that, you know. Even starting small at one meal a day, you know, I still have days where you know my one meal a day it might not be huge but actually that's an achievement because before I'd just go and eat nothing like for days and end nothing no step is too small it's like about everyone has bumps in the roads and it's like calling the AA out you are your own breakdown service and you just kind of gotta build yourself back up again to get back onto that journey and I'm so glad that although almost losing my life numerous times 
that I somehow survived. You know, many I had, my heart stopped numerous times and I'm still here, but I've seen so many positives that for me in that headspace, I never thought I'd see, but it's driven me to keep going throughout and no one knows what they're going to see in life. We're all going to deal with so many difficult things, you know, grief, losing your job, unemployment, maybe not having money, but all of these things do build us and put things into an I have a dream speech. You know, it's a small thing to do, but like I've always done every day, I'll be like, right, after that lady in the service said that, oh, just share a man and whatever, and just dismiss me. Right, so that's something negative that I've experienced. Now, what would I like? I'd like to see a service that supports everyone, no matter what gender, um, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, everyone is supported. And I will work towards that and just turn it into a positive, make it something you, you can work towards. And lads, keep talking. It's that simple. I'd love to love to start like a radio show just with lads, like for an hour a day. Wouldn't it be great if you had like a like BBC One just talking about, why don't we have a men's hour? I mean, to, to be fair, on ITV, we've now now seen more episodes of Loose Men taking over um, with Vernon Kay. Yeah, yeah. So this week, um, no, last week on Friday, Loose Men instead of Loose Women. And, you know, this that started. Oh, is that a thing? Is that a thing now? How is that? No, it, it, it's great. And that's something that Vernon Kay has done. Oh. So we're making we're making steps. Um, we keep talking, and you now if anyone feels alone and wants to reach out to me, I'm on literally as many platforms. You can get in con- get in touch via my website. I've got my policies. Everyone is safeguarded. I have to say it. You know, everything is confidential to a point. If I feel like your life or someone else's life is in a re- immediate risk of danger or harm, I do have to report it. I do have to share that confidentially with. The appropriate service to make sure you're okay but you can message me knowing that we can have a chat you can have a rant you're not alone and that if you do need help and you're just messaging me because you want me to help take that step for you because that is hard that i will do that and i have got the qualified <laughs> qualifications and training to be able to do that which is great um i had to work hard and it's nothing's ever a quick fix in this world of mental illness mental health um how how can people help your the charities that you're involved with? Is there a way that people can can get involved and help or, or donate or do things to raise money? Yeah, there are there are links all of my all on on all of my social media on my website as well to to all the charities, the organisations. Could be as simple as just running a cake sale, donating a pound. Every little helps. You know these zap workshops cost a fair bit because we've got to uh, with kidscape as the you've got to pay for the zoom platforms and we've got to have the cpd certification for all of them so you know even donating to kidscape you help fund sessions for children young people in schools out schools online and that keeps that support ongoing as well and there is a parent support group as well afterwards so parents can join and you can have a cry with other parents you can which is what you would need sometimes. Exactly. It's just that understanding. And it's autism friendly. Uh, Reach Out, um, who is a nonprofit organization, have joined forces with Kidscape to make things autism friendly. So we've got the different tools to help people on with autism, with anything. So it's all accessible. But yeah, anything that anyone can do is great. But give me a follow. If anyone's got any ideas of, how we can make change, let me know and we'll start making change. Just join forces with me, get behind me. You know, we'll go to Parliament and tell them to stop having parties and start actually looking at 
the problems. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I think that's a good note to finish on. Stop having parties and actually get behind some real some real meaningful issues. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on, Joe. I think you've got so much to say. You do need your own show and you have, you've achieved so much. And um, I think you certainly are a credit. It's a long way to go, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Messier discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel. Find out more at www.thehealthkick.co.uk or read her book, How Food Shapes Your Child or get in touch on social media. This is a 1386 audio production. 